If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of November 8th, 2020. The podcast that still hasn't found what it's looking for. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's epitomize the news of the bogus. Well, since we have no clue who the president's going to be for the next four years, while everyone's freaking out about that, why don't we look at election results that actually matter? The biggest is probably in Oregon, which became the first state to legalize small amounts of all sorts of drugs, including hard drugs like heroin, cocaine, and meth. Measure 110 passed 59 to 41% and will now offer addiction services instead of jail to anyone using these drugs. It only legalized small amounts, including 1 gram of heroin or MDMA, 2 grams of cocaine or meth, 12 of psilocybin mushrooms, and 40 doses of LSD, oxycodone, or methadone. Criminal penalties are limited to a fine of $100, which can be waived by an evaluation from an addiction recovery center. The measure was endorsed by more than a 100 health organizations, including the American College of Physicians, Oregon Nurses Association, Oregon School Psychologists Association, Oregon Academy of Family Physicians, and others. Of course, idiot drug warrior DAs were against it, with two dozen joining in in the statement saying that this, quote, recklessly decriminalizes possession of the most dangerous types of drugs and will lead to an increase in acceptability of dangerous drugs. A psilocybin referendum also passed in D.C. by a margin of 3 to 1. It didn't legalize it, but it made it the lowest priority for police officers. Medical or recreational use of marijuana passed in Mississippi, Arizona, South Dakota, New Jersey, and Montana. In fact, of nine state ballot initiatives legalizing or criminalizing drugs, not a single one failed. Moving on from drugs, the most expensive ballot initiative in Massachusetts history resulted in a victory for right-to-repair advocates, closing a loophole resulting from a similar initiative in 2012. Basically, if you own a car with a check engine light, you don't have to go to an authorized repair shop to know what it means. You can access that data yourself or at any independent repair shop. A coalition including Ford, GM, Toyota, and other manufacturers put $26 million into opposing the campaign, but that didn't stop it from being approved by almost 75% of voters. Over in California, Proposition 22 will put a stop to something we've covered before, the state trying to put a stop to freelancers like Uber and Lyft drivers. It passed with 57.7% of the vote. California voters also rejected Proposition 16, which would have reinstated failed racist affirmative action requirements. They also voted down rent control in Proposition 21, but approved Proposition 17, which restores the right of felons to vote when they're released on parole. It was also a good night for criminal justice reform. Portland, Oregon, and Columbus, Ohio will now have to create new police oversight panels. San Diego will have to dissolve the city's police review board and create a new commission on police practices. And civilian police oversight panels passed in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And just to put a nice little cap on things, Illinois rejected an income tax hike. So cheer up! Tuesday wasn't all bad. (music) 
If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on BitTube.tv or LBRY.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on BidTube.tv or LBRY.tv or with the Airtime extension at Airtime.Pagosity.tv. Now an update on the Kim.com case and it's deja vu all over again as the court says that he can be extradited, but not yet. We've been covering the extradition hearing of the Mega Upload creator, along with co-defendants Matthias Ortman, Bram van der Kolk, and Finn Batado, pretty much since it started in 2012. They're accused of breaching copyright by creating a website that works almost identically to how Dropbox would later work. Yet, no one seems to want to call it the first cloud storage service, even though that's what it was. They want to extradite .com from his home in New Zealand to the United States to face criminal charges, even though he's never even set foot in the U.S. or done business there. And neither country has any criminal statute against secondary copyright infringement. In 2015, the district court ruled for extradition, and they challenged that with a judicial review. But the Supreme Court has said the review must go ahead. The review will examine questions of procedural unfairness, breach of natural justice, errors of fact, and unreasonableness. The Supreme Court also rejected the Court of Appeals' argument that the review proceedings were an abuse of process. Yes, they actually claimed that about a judicial review. Ron Mansfield, lawyer for .com, said the ruling was a mixed bag, quote, we welcome the opportunity to take the United States to task on its prosecution and management of this request for extradition. This has been a political case, and the United States have sought to thwart Mr. Dotcom running any meaningful factual defense to it. At least now they can argue against serious procedural issues, including the U.S. and New Zealand authorities refusing to turn over vital information and the refusal to allow Dotcom to use his own money to hire expert witnesses to testify on his behalf. They had previously won the right to use .com's money to hire a legal team. But he said the court rejecting their copyright argument of safe harbor, quote, will have an immediate and chilling impact on the internet. That's because internet service providers can be found criminally liable effectively for the acts of its users, certainly if they're aware that its users are infringing copyright. You don't have to look very far on most websites to see copyright infringement, so it extends civil liability, which we all knew existed in New Zealand, into criminal liability. The decision on extradition will be made once the review and its appeals are resolved. Until then, as Mansfield asks, Can we live with it? Will it result in access restrictions and further costs that we will incur as a result? Or will our government be lobbied to intervene and provide real and workable protections for them? With COVID-19 upon us, access to the internet is now essential to our business community, more so than it has ever been in the past.
Yep, and if the copyright moguls have their way, no one will be safe. Even if they don't live in the country, and even if they never committed a crime. That's all the reason we need to keep watching this case. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. And now another update, this time to the Silk Road case that left Ross Ulbricht serving double life plus 40 years. The Bitcoin world was rocked this week when, within minutes of it happening, they noticed a transaction moving over $1 billion in Bitcoin to a new address. It didn't take long for people on the internet to tie some of the source addresses to Silk Road. Sometime after everyone picked their jaws up off the floor, the Department of Justice released a statement saying that they had seized the Bitcoin, which they claim represents the largest seizure of cryptocurrency in history. According to U.S. Attorney David L. Anderson, quote, Silk Road was the most notorious online criminal marketplace of its day. The successful prosecution of Silk Road's founder in 2015 left open a billion-dollar question. Where did the money go? Today's forfeiture complaint answers this open question at least in part. One billion dollars of these criminal proceeds are now in the United States' possession. IRS CI Special Agent in Charge Kelly R. Jackson said, quote, Criminal proceeds should not remain in the hands of the thieves. Well then what are you doing with them? So, they seized the Bitcoin, but the question is, how? You would need to get the private keys in order to do so. Well, according to the statement, they were connected to someone they call Individual X, who had hacked the Silk Road and stolen the funds around 2012 and 2013. The seizure of these coins was during the pursuit of this investigation. Yes, this is another one of those civil forfeiture cases known as United States v. approximately 69,370 Bitcoin. Gotta love it. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. 
LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to sensualize this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to The Intercept, the newspaper co-founded by Glenn Greenwald, supposedly to support journalistic freedom and integrity. We've been watching it go downhill over the past year, but now they've really jumped the shark. Greenwald, who still seems ever dedicated to his principles, wrote a story involving the evidence of wrongdoing against Hunter Biden and his father Joe during his capacity as vice president, taken from a hard drive the younger Biden had left at a repair shop. That was when Greenwald found himself censored by his own news company, a company he founded to avoid exactly that. Greenwald said, quote, the irony is that a media outlet I co-founded, and which was built on my name and my accomplishments, with the purpose of guaranteeing editorial independence, is now censoring me in the most egregious way about the leading presidential candidate a week before the election. He posted the uncensored article in full on Substack, a website more and more independent journalists such as Matt Tybee are going to. Who wants to start a pool on when they'll try and get it deplatformed as a website run by Nazis, white supremacists, and Russian intelligence agents? The main culprit here seems to be lead editor Betsy Reed, who said that even if the story were true, it would, quote, represent a tiny fraction of the sleaze and lies Trump and his cronies are oozing in every day. Greenwald said that not reporting on one politician's misdeeds because another was worse was a, quote, corrupt calculus. And really, we were talking about just a single article here, reviewing the same New York Post article we mentioned a few weeks ago, in particular involving emails, some of which have since been verified thanks to the digital signature Gmail attaches to all its emails. Tybee gives us a bit of the down low in his article on the controversy, quote, when reporters and editors interact, they speak between the lines. If an editor only ever suggests or assigns stories from a certain angle, you're being told they don't particularly want the other angle. If your editor has a lot of hypothetical concerns at the start, he or she probably won't be upset if you choose a different topic. Finally, when an editor lays out suggestions about things that might help a piece be even stronger, it's a signal both parties understand about what elements have to be put in before the editor will send the thing through. She had insisted that they tap into in-house knowledge in the form of two reporters Greenwald had clashed with in the past, one of whom had wrongly denounced the Post piece not only as a conspiracy theory, but Russian disinformation. These would be the so-called fact-checkers. Greenwald put it plainly, If someone at The Intercept wants to say something consistent with the prevailing liberal narrative or designed to help Biden win, same thing, no editorial standards of any kind are applied. They're free to say whatever they want, even if it's false. 
That's why Ryzen was able to publish a story today claiming over and over that the New York Post emails are Russian disinformation, even though everyone knows there's no proof of that. But liberals like it, and it helps Biden, so it's good to go. But if I want to write an article calling into question the prevailing views about Biden and Burisma, a huge editorial squad is being prepared to subject every comma to intense scrutiny. I just wish there is an acknowledgement of the double standards. The only reason people are getting interested in and ready to scrutinize what I write is because everyone is afraid of being accused of having published something harmful to Biden. That's the reality. And Greenwald noted that none of them had identified a single factual inaccuracy in the article. He wrote, What a healthy and confident news organization would do, as the New York Times recently did with its own Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 project, is air the different views the journalists have about the evidence and let readers decide what they find convincing, not force everyone to adhere to a top-down editorial line and explicitly declare that any story that raises questions about Biden's conduct is barred from being published now that he's the Democratic nominee. They refused to budge, leaving Greenwald with little option but to resign from the very news outlet he himself created to avoid exactly this sort of thing. The Intercept quickly went into damage control mode, with Reed calling him, quote, a grown person throwing a tantrum. She also said, quote, while he accuses us of political bias, it was he who was attempting to recycle a political campaigns, the Trump campaign's dubious claims, and launder them as journalism. Those of you who heard our coverage of that a few weeks ago knows that this is an outright lie. Tybee reached out to both Reed and Mass for comment, but neither responded. Tybee wrote, in the last few weeks, I've heard from multiple well-known journalists going through struggles in their newsroom with pressure to avoid certain themes in campaign coverage often central to their worries. There are many reporters out there, most of them quite personally hostile to Donald Trump, who are grading under what they perceive as relentless pressure to publish material favor to the Democratic Party cause. Greenwald's story mirrors some of these stories, but his is more striking than some others on a few levels. Again, the whole idea of The Intercept was to avoid exactly this, because of Greenwald's experience he had trying to publish Edward Snowden's revelations in the face of censorship and even threats. He and the other founders wrote in their founding document, quote, The editorial independence of our journalists will be guaranteed. Our journalists will not only be permitted, but encouraged to pursue stories without regard to whom they might alienate. Greenwald and Tybee were both, to their credit, journalists who never fell for the fake Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, even though they both politically aligned with the left. Sadly, their integrity, which should be the standard in journalism today, is not only rare, but, it seems, downright ostracized and eliminated wherever it is found. As Tybee wrote, the significance of what's happened with The Intercept is that even journalists working in companies they founded can't get away from these pressures. For every public story like Greenwald's, there are dozens more you don't hear about involving media members who can't speak out. Not all of them are dealing with the same issues, but dynamics are often similar. And, in the process, fallen prey to the very sources they claim to oppose, quote, 
They've surrendered their own traditional roles as questioners and arbiters of fact, giving that power over to the same people and institutions whose poor performance, record of deception, and corruption helped inspire voters to make such a desperate choice in Trump in the first place. They've not only allowed intelligence community narratives to drive the press, they've invited it. So all of that makes The Intercept this week's Biggest Bogani Mitter. want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's nidify this week's Idiot And this week it goes to California Governor Gavin Newsom, who just got smacked down by the courts for way overstepping his constitutional bounds during the COVID-19 pandemic. Superior Court Judge Sarah Heckman said that he wasn't allowed to make any order that, quote, changes existing statutory law or makes new statutory law or legislative policy. Only the state legislature can do that, according to the basic separation of powers most of us learned about in grade school. He has made over 50 executive orders changing California's statutes since the COVID-19 emergency was declared, including three regarding the general election. In particular, his order that vote-by-mail ballots be sent to each of the 21 million registered voters in the state violated the California state constitution because it was legislative in nature instead of an order putting into effect an existing statute and by existing statute, the California Emergency Services Act, or CESA, doesn't count. She ruled, The controversy at issue in this case is specifically whether the governor has the authority under the California Emergency Services Act to exercise legislative powers by unilaterally amending, altering, or changing existing statutory law or making new statutory law. Plaintiffs take the position in these proceedings that the governor does not have such authority under California Constitution or the CESA to legislate by unilaterally amending existing statutory law. The governor takes the position that the CESA's grant of authority to exercise all police power vested in the state, allowing him to promulgate, issue, and enforce such orders and regulations as he deems necessary, authorizes him to legislate by unilaterally amending existing statutory law. And she found... The plain meaning of the CESA does not delegate to the governor the power to legislate. In fact, the language of the bill only allows the governor to, quote, make, amend, and rescind orders and regulations. That's orders and regulations, not statutes. 
She directly voided the executive order sending out mail-in votes to every voter and issued a permanent injunction stating, quote, Gavin Newsom, in his official capacity as governor of the state of California, is enjoined and prohibited from exercising any power under the California Emergency Services Act which amends, alters, or changes existing statutory law or makes new statutory law or legislative policy. I have the feeling she had to resist the urge to add, so there, at the end. The state public health officer does have the authority under state law to combat contagions as long as they are, quote, necessary to ascertain the nature of the disease and prevent its spread. So this is unlikely to affect things like mask mandates, but there are a lot of orders involving things like evictions and so-called price gouging that have absolutely nothing to do with any statute passed by the legislation. Now, this is a tentative judgment. The parties have 10 days to specify requests or make new proposals, and if they don't, the decision stands. The lawsuit was filed by Republican State Assemblyman James Gallagher and Kevin Kiley, who said in a joint statement, quote, This is a victory for separation of powers. The governor has continued to create and change state law without public input and without the deliberative process provided by the legislature. Today, the judicial branch again gave him the check that was needed and that the Constitution requires. Nobody disputes that there are actions that should be taken to keep people safe during an emergency, but that doesn't mean that we put our Constitution and free society on hold by centralizing all power in the hands of one man. Meanwhile, despite Newsom's victory on Tuesday, California voters are gathering signatures to recall Newsom. They have until March 10 to collect almost 1.5 million signatures, but they say they already have close to 700,000. In the meantime, we'll just have to settle for Gavin Newsom being named this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this The Magna Carta Master Charger edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please keep this podcast going by subscribing and supporting in one of several different ways you can find at donate.bogosity.tv, including PayPal, cryptocurrency, or subscribing at Patreon or Subscribestar to listen early and ad-free. Also, please come to discord.bogosity.tv where you can join the discussion and post a question, statement, news article, or rant. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from L. Neal Smith. Principles are not meant for times or circumstances when abiding by them is easy. Therefore, when it is hard, they are not meant to be thrown over in an emergency or suspended for the duration, but to be honored no matter how dangerous or difficult it gets. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? 
If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins.